Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Wild Connection, the podcast. This is episode six in our second season, and I feel so grateful for everyone that's listening and for all of my incredible guests because I am getting to meet some spectacular scientists, authors, conservationists, journalists, and artists. There's a lot happening this season, and I'm also happy to announce that we received a small sharing science grant from the American Geophysical Union to focus on women in science for the podcast and for my YouTube channel, Wild Connection TV. Stay tuned because starting in January and leading all the way up to February 11th, International Women and Girls in Science Day, I will be bringing you some inspiring women doing badass work. I'm also going to be working on the Podbean patron page, so if you want to help support this podcast, you'll be able to. If you've been listening, you know that sometimes there's original art made just for WOW Connections, and soon you'll be able to get your hands on some of this. Stay tuned for more on that. Today, as I was getting ready to record for this episode, a huge flock of red-crowned parrots aggregated outside of my window. It was like a harbinger of good fortune, since this week's guest is an expert on birds, and I feel fortunate to bring Dr. J. Drew Lanham to the show. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this wild and crazy thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. If you like the show, please subscribe to it so you never miss an episode. All right. I am thrilled to introduce you to a remarkable scientist, author, poet, and well, human. J. Drew Lanham is a professor of cultural and conservation ornithology at Clemson University. He's a poet laureate of his home county, Edgefield, and the author of two books, The Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature, and Sparrow Envy, Field Guide to Birds and Lesser Beasts. All right, everybody, I want to welcome J. Drew Lanham to the show. I'm so excited to have you. Great to be here or there or somewhere in between. Well, that's the thing about life right now, right? We can be anywhere and nowhere at the same time. Yeah, sort of in the uh, ethereal, I guess, sort of. Yeah. But all good. It is. It is. Now, you're an author, a poet, a photographer, because I've seen your photographs, um, a scientist, and really, you know, from my perspective, a leader, leader in conservation, um, a leader uh, in in how you are connecting people back with nature, which is kind of the premise for this whole podcast. That's why it's called Wild Connection. And, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, where did you develop this passion for nature and for bringing people closer to nature? Well, uh, again, Jennifer, thanks for for having me on. I, you know, it's um, it's nature and nurture. It it's it's growing up in um, the one of the most rural places 
that still I've ever been, which was Edgefield, South Carolina, and then growing up on a family farm. So um, depending on nature, literally for, for sustenance, for food, for water, um, and, and that, that puts you in sort of a certain place, a certain understanding from the get-go. And then, then having parents who were both science teachers, my mother, a biology teacher, and my father, an earth scientist, um, you know, that, that took it sort of to another level so that when I had questions about, you know, tadpoles or how birds flew or anything else, I could ask them and get um, these, these, these really great responses from them. But I also spent so much time with my grandmother who lived this sort of mystics life. And, and so, you know, her ornithology was different than my ornithology. Her ornithology had rain crows and big owls and, and bee martins. My ornithology had the same birds as, as, as yellow-billed cuckoos and great horned owls and eastern kingbirds. So all of that together, just growing up that way, um, depending on nature on a daily basis, having parents who were, were, were trained scientists, and then a grandmother who informed my life in another way, sort of in this other realm, all of it converged to make me who I am. That's wonderful. And, you know, you in your memoir, The Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature, you talk a lot about your family and and in a lot of beautiful different ways and connecting them to how they shaped you. And your grandmother, you described her um, as sort of a conjurer in your in your book and also that she had this other kind of knowledge about plants and, and remedies. And, and so what are the things, what other things do you remember learning from her? Well, I, you know, it was this, um, it was this sort of proximity to it all. I mean, she lived in this, this, this ramshackle of a house, as I call it. And, um, and, and there was barely, it seemed a wall between us and wildness. So stepping out of her back door was like stepping into um, into wilderness. I, I didn't you didn't have to go very far um, to to find the wild. And so I could step out that back door and, and not even step out of the back door. I could hear foxes barking on a spring morning or uh, barred owls calling um, on a on a summer's eve. So you know, she, she taught me that, that nature was tangible, right? It wasn't some far away place that I had to imagine. It was all real, just right there. And so even though, you know, she spent most of the time in her own yard, um, it felt like she knew much more about the world that was beyond that yard. And so she instilled in me sort of this innate curiosity. Well, I, you know, or, or stirred it, you know, it was innate, I think. But what she did was sort of sparked the desire to know more, to, to, to explore. You know, she never, she never stopped me from going anyplace. She gave me um, the gift of freedom to roam. You know, she would say, be careful. Um, she always warned me about snakes. 
you know, like coach whips that she said would take up their tails in their mouths and roll after me. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that kind of stuff. But, you know, she never said, don't go there. Um, it was just always be careful. And so that's a that's a you know, freedom is 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 a is a wonderful thing um, to have it sort of validated and, and have someone say, oh, yeah, go out there and just learn. And as long as you come back safely, it's all good. Right. So she gave me a lot of that. She gave me a lot of room to roam. Well, and, you know, I think that freedom, like you said, cultivates that and nurtures, you know, that curiosity that you have. I had kind of the opposite upbringing, which was I was the only one in my family enamored with anything that was other than human. And <laughs> um, that wasn't terribly well received. And I like to, I love to climb trees until like, Oh, don't do that. It's dangerous. Right. There's all these, don't do this. It's dangerous. And so I'm wondering having received that freedom and that gift from her, do you think that contributed to how comfortable you are in nature? And when you go out into, into the field or into the woods or into wilderness? Yeah, Jennifer. I, yeah, certainly. I, you know, I love to climb trees too. And my grandmother was cool with me climbing trees because she wanted me to climb her pecan tree to, uh, you, you know, to shake down nuts, you know, but she would always stand on the ground. And, you know, as a kid, it just seems like if you climb 10 feet up as a kid, um, you know, you recognize it as 10 or 20 feet. Now, back then, it seemed like hundreds of feet. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I would climb up this pecan tree and my grandmother would she would, she would say that I made her scared all down in her hips. I don't know what exactly that meant, but she, she would, she would just tell me to be careful. She would never tell me not to climb um, because she wanted those pecans. <laughs> but, but, but ultimately, you know, that, that gift of sort, it's sort of an independence, right? And confidence um, and confidence. And, yeah. And certainly in confidence and in, in going and knowing um, how to how to do what you want and stay out of trouble and that kind of thing, so that certainly carried over to now. And 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 really, the the only thing that ever I can really truly remember being afraid of as a kid was, you know, when my dad would say or somebody would say, "Oh well, somebody is trespassing and they might be hunting and." you got to be careful. You don't want to get shot. So, you know, now as a, as an adult black man, that's, that's the only thing that really gives me pause. It's not a, not any sort of fanged or clawed beast or slithering venomous thing. Um, it's, it's human beings that are yeah. out there that, that might wish me ill will. So the confidence to go courageously into the wild carried over but then you know the reality of it is now that that some of the issues that you have to face are are there are there people out there who could hurt you um certain you can go in places where yeah you know you can get I, I go in marshes where you could get snatched by a gator or I've I've been on Kodiak Island where there are <laughs> lots of brown bears but, I, you know, I've never been as afraid in the woods or any place as I have when 
there was someone, some human being out there that I knew might not like me being out there. Yeah. So she didn't, she didn't necessarily have a chance to teach me that that's, you know, those are some of the hard lessons that come, come from being, being black in in this country and, d- and doing what I do. Yeah. And I, I want to talk more about that in a little bit. I can say like, I can't share what that experience is like for you as a black man, but I can say as a woman, the only time I'm more afraid of other people, actually other men, actually specifically white men, (laughs) um, than I am of critters. Right. And, and my experience in the woods is always hypervigilant for other people while being careful about wildlife. Um, yeah. And so I I can relate only to that extent that what you look like and how you are identified by others can elevate your uh, fear or 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 danger level in any particular space. And so I I, I do want to talk about what it means for you, you know, and and how what you've experienced along your trajectory um, about birding while black, being a scientist, um, and growing up in a rural South Carolina community during the sixties and seventies. Um, and so, you know, do you want to talk about that a little bit? When did you first realize that there was this potential for danger just because you're black? You know, it, it, um, (laughs) I, I lived sort of a blissful existence for a lot of my, um, for a lot of my life, at least, you know, in elementary school. And I mean, there's always that first incident of, of somebody calling you out of your name, some white person calling you out of your name. You know, there's that, there's the hurt of that. But then there, there were all these subtle things, you know, I can remember being a little kid and being picture day and they'd hand out these little flimsy combs. And, um, I had a little, I had a little natural, right? Wasn't quite a fro. It was kind of packed in uh-huh. and I remember breaking that comb off in my little fro and, and the little white kids laughing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's a matter of, um, of sort of, uh, breaks fissures in your identity in your self-confidence, yeah. right. And how you think about who it is that you are. And so I can remember, you know, from that point, of, of not wanting the embarrassment of not being able to use those tiny little combs that they passed out that, that I got to the point when I go to the barber with my dad, I, you know, I'd, I'd basically get, you know, what we call a Caesar now. Um, but I, I, I'd, I'd get my hair mostly shaved off and then I'd have to worry about it or I could even fake it. Right. I could then use that little comb and just sort of run it through the hair that wasn't there and and be comfortable in who I was and not have kids um, have the white kids laugh at me because I couldn't comb my hair with the combs that they were using. So that was a point of entry for identity and, and blackness. Right. Really. And, and yeah. that's something that that seems minor, but it, it puts you in a place of 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 understanding difference and not necessarily understanding that difference as value added yeah. as a kid. And so you have to, you know, you have to grow into that. But, you know, I, I can remember, you know, when I when I came to 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 college really, 
that's that's I think for 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 me when it became I became hyper aware. Not that I wasn't aware in high school, but look, I'm I'm growing up rural, right? Right. Um, I was at school with with uh, with white kids, but then I would leave for this other life, and so I didn't really have to interact with so- socially with people outside of school. When I when I came to college, things changed because there I was 24 hours a day, you know, seven days a week potentially with with other people who did not look like me. And Clemson is a PWI; it's a predominantly white institution. So, you know, you 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 become aware of 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 your yourself in sort of those surroundings and. Um, you know, I joined a fraternity, Kappa Alpha Psi, and, you know, it's, and, and, and being one of the divine nine on a predominantly white campus is almost like having, you know, these, these, these little, these miniature moments of, of not being historically black, but currently black in that situation. So all of that, I say to say, there were these different stages of reckoning with, with self and understanding who it is that you are, but in my field as an ornithologist, you know, a lot of the recognition of, of who I am as a wildlife ecologist and a nature lover was made clear to me as something that black people didn't necessarily do when I was in high school. Cause when I made it known that I wanted to be a zoologist and an ornithologist, you know, people would like, look at me like black people don't do that. You, right. you should be an engineer. You got to be an engineer. You right. have to be an engineer. Maybe you can be a physician and you can take biology and do that stuff. And so there, there are two sides to identity. Those who you don't, who don't like you because of how you look and those who may not understand you because of what you like. And, and so that's between a rock and a hard place, as my grandmother used to say. And in this field, you know, it's, it's getting a little better. You, you see other birders of, and wildlifers of, of color, but it's still woefully underrepresented. We're still one percenters or close to it. So you're, you're constantly aware, Jennifer, you talked about being hypervigilant, yeah. you know, when you're out, you know, I'd be hypervigilant like at professional meetings, right? <laughs> um, yeah. You know, cause, cause people would, would ask my graduate students where Dr. Lanham was and they'd be looking right at me. And this was, you know, like pre-Google and they right. couldn't find me. Right. So they just assumed that I was a white guy. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's, it's interesting because you mentioned that you were told you should be an engineer. And mm-hmm. in fact, you went to Clemson as an engineering major, I believe on a DuPont fellowship, <laughs> right? Scholarship. And yet you are not an engineer. So that means there was something that you did to change direction. And I'm going to guess that took a lot of guts because when you're between a rock and a hard place and yet you, what, what made you have the guts to follow your, follow your, your passion, your, your goals and switch, you know, a, a, a good friend of mine um, years ago told me until the pain of not changing becomes greater than the pain of change, you stay the same. And so staying in that major 
it, daily I was suffering, right? I mean, I was doing okay, but I also recognized that I was gaming the system and getting by. And I, I came to think about it this way, Jennifer, it, you know, my passion was leading me another way. It was leading me away from engineering such that in engineering, you know, I was sort of satisfied with mediocre. As long as I got out of the class with, you know, passing grades and went on to the next class or whatever, I was okay with that. I was just kind of like, oh, okay, I jumped through that hoop. Now the next thing. But but uh, imagine if I had um, gone ahead and I was only a year and a half from graduating when I changed my major. Uh, someone who had only done enough to get by, uh, who maybe gets a job designing you know, or testing aircraft wing loads or, or who responsibility for reactor, for reactor safety. Who wants that? Who wants those kinds of people dispassionate doing anything? Imagine, I mean, if you go to your dentist or your physician or whomever, and they're sort of like, you know, half-assing it and, 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 then we all know what that results in. So, sure. so I, you know, and I was dying inside, quite frankly, I was, I kept trying to find ways to do what I knew my heart was pulling me to do. And so even as I lobbied my scholarship sponsors to let me major in something else that I was going to be really super good at, they kept denying me, even as the standards for the scholarship itself they denied me the freedom, you know, that my grandmother gave me. They denied me that freedom to roam. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that happens to me is that when you deny me the freedom to be who it is that I am, I'm going to find a way out. Oh, yeah. Well, we I think we share, uh, you know, you're speaking my language because the worst <laughs> thing you can do is keep me in a box because I will get out of it as fast as possible. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I mean, well, I mean, you know, you, you talked about, you know, this point of empathy and going out and, and, and the two of us share that and being vigilant and being out there, but you don't stop going, right. You find, you find ways. And so for me, it just got to a point where, uh, one day the, you know, that whole cost benefit thing, uh, um, you know, the cost of, of doing, of following the conventional route and other people's expectations got way higher than the benefits of doing it. So, yeah. so yeah, I, 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 I've, I've come to this point now where um, I, I tell people I can remember that, that spring day, I can visit the point on the sidewalk where I turned. I, I know I'm willing to bet you that it's within 10 feet of where it happened because I just turned around and just went back to my apartment. And, and I tell people I went back and I watched He-Man and Transformers and ate like a whole box of Fruit Loops out of a big mixing bowl. But in doing that, yeah, I was worried about what people would think. But by, you know, the end of that week, you know, I had support from my um, my girlfriend who would later become my wife. I had and that was really like the only support that I had. 
other people, including, you know, my family, they were like, oh, you know, you can't, my mother's like, oh, you can't do that. You can't give up that scholarship. It's so prestigious. And, but it was killing me. Yeah. And I do not, not think Jennifer today, I'm not sure I would be alive. Um, if I had followed that route, it yeah. was that bad. Well, you know, it's interesting because something that comes up when, you know, I was listening to you talk and, and, is that first generation college graduate? I don't know if in your family you were the were you that you weren't the first to go to college. So no, no. for many first generation um, college students, they have a ton of pressure from their families that if you're going to go to college and we're going to make all these sacrifices, you better you know pursue something like being a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, something we can hang our hat on and not everybody has an, a, a connection to what they know in their heart they want to do. And I think, mm. you know, the fact that you did, because when I was reading your rent memoir, I mean, ever since you were little, you seem to have this sort of envy of birds that they, they could fly and, and you couldn't quite manage to fly. And you had this experience growing up in this area where you could explore nature and you were supported in your curiosity and those explorations by your family and all the experiences you had. So, you know, and and yet it still takes courage to walk away from a very well-defined path and say, okay, I'm going to create my own. Well, you know, when people say, I don't want to get into the weeds, I want to get into the weeds. I. And so thank you for, for recognizing that. I, I just, uh, yeah, it was this, this point of, of, of understanding, um, man, it's so hard to fake it. it. But then when you realize, when you understand as a, as a person that you're faking your way through life, mm-hmm. I mean, some people do it right with a plum and, not only get away with it, but maybe somehow thrive in doing that. It was, it was just, it was difficult for me. And so, um, you know, that whole idea of, um, of singing in that cage, you know, um, being, being Maya's caged bird, I could, I wanted to be free and, and, and whatever that meant at that point in time, I didn't have in my head necessarily a plan other than knowing that I did not want to continue on that same path. And so I, you know, when I, when I talk to people about career path or life path, you know, and certainly everything's not perfect in my life, but I I try to tell them, impart to them how important passion is, you know, you and I study study wildlife and these animals, not because they're going to make us rich, but because it's going to, it enriches us in this, this sort of deeply soulful way that it's, it's hard to describe. You've heard people say, I don't know, but I know it when I see it. Yeah. Well, I know it when I know it when I feel it. Yes. Oh my gosh. I just got goosebumps because, you know, yeah, for me, I I never really kind of knew it wasn't, I wasn't ever told I could be a scientist or I didn't really know what that meant. Right. It was like teacher, policeman, 
maybe not for me, you know, not when I was growing up. Um, <laughs> right. Um, not even astronaut and I don't even think doctor, but it was like teacher. You could be a teacher. <laughs> and I don't ever remember getting the message about scientists. So I didn't really know what that was. And it, and I still never really aspired to become a scientist. I just wanted permission from the world to be able to sit and hang out with animals and talk about why they do what they do. Like that was it, you know, and I explored becoming a veterinarian and that wasn't for me. And I, I explored, you know, looking at zoos and I'm like, nah, that's not it. What do I, what makes me happy? Well, I just, I'm curious. I'm curious about all of these different animals and I want to know why they do what they do. And I want to tell people about it. And, you know, that was, that was just it. And then I had to figure out, well, what kind of job do you do where that's like what you do? And, you know, and it took a, a, a really long time and it eventually got me to a similar place that it got you. You were doing your first research project was bluebirds and and from from your reading it, it didn't sound like as much as you loved being outdoors that the sort of humdrum of field research was your jam like what how, what was that experience for you and how did you reconcile like oh my gosh I really love birds and, and this but I'm not like so excited about this whole like going out in the heat and checking nest boxes all day long every day yeah, you know, that project, um, the un uncertain paternity in Eastern Bluebirds with um with Dr. Patty Gawadi, that that was um that's how I learned science, you know, and um it's 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 part of what taught me during some of those times where I was I was out there, my little Honda Civic with no AC and using the change in my ashtray to buy gas because uh, because the pay wasn't rolling in like it was supposed to. And, uh, you know, and watching these birds and getting color bands and bleeding the nestlings. And it was sort of you get in this rhythm of it. And and at one point it seemed very sort of production line. Right. Mm -hmm. And but then there were these moments between the nest boxes, you know, with a field full of bobolinks, or 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 seeing, or seeing a scissor tail flycatcher, which is um, was sort of a rarity for South Carolina back then. And and in between the humdrum were these moments of wonder that said, "Oh, so it's it's you got to expand beyond just doing this." you know, this necessary data gathering to understand or try to get some understanding of, of, of how these creatures are behaving, but look where you are, you know? And so again, I had to understand that it wasn't just about the work. It was about the opportunities that the work opened up for me. So Again, it's, um, you know, as a as a major advisor for grad students, that's one of the things that I, I understand that that the field work can often become it's it's arduous, it's tough, it's grimy, it's it's um, it's bugs. It's, you know, and people try to paint it up as is all glamour. Right. And it's not 
No. And, and it's not all glamour. People are, oh, you're so lucky you get to go out and yeah, but you know, the, what you don't understand is what you have to endure to get that paper out oh, yeah. or to, to get that degree. And what keeps you going sometimes are these moments in between these, these moments in between. And you're like, oh my God, yeah, this, this is, this is my office out here. Yeah. This, and this makes it my jam. So, you know, it's, it's, that's one of the things that I always try to again, try to impart is that the, the enrichment comes in, in the whole thing. When you think about the whole thing, it's sort of like, I don't know of any, you know, and I know professional athletes and I don't know of any of them or very many that tell me, Oh, I just can't wait to get out and practice in the heat and to run winds <laughs> and to, I, I just love I just love practice. Know that <laughs> that practice is a part of of the whole, and so you know, science is a practice, and um, you know, it's it's and and all we are building is 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 questions that lead to another set of questions. So you talk about curiosity, Jennifer, and you talk about how important that is in your life. And I like to think of curiosity as sort of job security for your brain. If I'm not curious, if we aren't curious about things, then we're not thinking, then we're not expanding our minds. Then for me, uh, if I'm not learning, it's time for my ashes to blow in the wind. Yeah. So, so from that perspective, that, that project, that uncertain paternity was, was such a cool sort of send off for me because I would, I would leave the field, right? And then I would get to go and sit, um, you know, at the same desk with this brilliant woman who was helping define a whole discipline and and ecofeminism and to think about not just the bluebirds and <laughs> and and people making these assumptions about, you know, male choice or mate choice, right? Mm-hmm. And and finding, oh, you know. These these female bluebirds have a lot to say about what's going on, um, and all, and 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 most of what was going on, and and what we were seeing at these nest boxes, and you know, people wanted to say, oh well, yeah, the males are going out and seeking extra pair copulations, or maybe the males were 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 it was forced copulations, forced extra pair copulations, and but then. You know, Patty would would say, well, yeah, but what are the females doing? Are they are they are they going out just like the males and looking um, for maybe bluer males or males that are better provisioners or whatever? So that that, again, was sort of this thing of even between box checks, those conversations with Patty um, led me to think about you know, these mating systems, which I know you've written extensively about. So when, when I connected with your book, connections, because I, I end up going to these talks and I talk a lot about birds, obviously, but sometimes I talk about bird sex or, and, and, but trying to get people to be at some position of empathy with non-human beings. Yeah. Um, which y- you've done in, in which Patty you know, this brilliant scientist who was gathering 
this this robust, rigorous data, the conversations that we would have after the box checks expanded the world beyond just birds for me. So yeah, that's how I reconcile it. You know, we're just, you know, we're just animals on the planet with other animals. Well, Drew, there are so many things you brought up there that I want to, I want to pull as many of those threads as possible. So, um, you know, the first, uh, the first thing that jumps out at me is I love what you were saying that if uh, that curiosity is, is it food for your brain? Is that, is that sort of, you know, it's job security for your yeah, brain. job security for your brain. So it's so interesting because one of the things I tell my students is your your level of curiosity is directly proportional. Or your level of engagement with a course, with the material, with whatever you're doing is directly proportional to your level of curiosity. Now, yes, mm-hmm. you, you know, bad instructors aside. Right. Um, <laughs> which can alter your level of engagement, I'm sure. But in general, right, the more curious we are, the more engaged we are. And, and so for, for me, uh, that sort of jumped out as, as this really important piece, because if you lose that curiosity, then you just really are not engaged in life at all. And that's basically a less eloquent way of saying, you know, send my ashes off. Um, the other thing that, that kind of comes out is I love what you were saying about these moments in between, because, you know, I studied prairie dogs and I mean, I would be in the field from four 30 in the morning to seven o'clock at night, you know, and I was often asked to take a shower because I, I like by my housemate who would be like, it's time to bathe. Like, I don't know what you're doing, but shower. And, you know, because I would just be out there, right. I would be out there. I'd be, and it was arduous. Like you said, I mean, I was trapping prairie dogs and then collecting all this data on prairie dogs, but but it was these moments in between. It was like, I'll never forget the hummingbird since you're the ornithologist in the room here attacking my binoculars. And I was like, I didn't know hummingbirds were such jerks. Like this is, I get it. It's your bush. I'm not, I was here first technically cause you migrated here. So, you know, I was sitting here before you got here. There was the squirrel that pelted me with, pine cones because I had the audacity to sit under its tree. And I'm like, I really, I don't want anything you've got. I like, it's good. There's the coyotes that would be observing me observe the prairie dogs. And I felt like they thought I was a terrible hunter. I caught nothing. They were just like watching me trying to figure out what is this creature doing, doing nothing. There was, I'll never forget four juvenile, young elk, bull males. And they obviously didn't know I was there. I I mean, the wind was blowing in some kind of way. Maybe I hadn't showered. (laughs) I don't know. But I was sitting on the ground at the base of a tree and these four young males come into the clearing they don't know that I'm there. And I had to sneeze. So I sneezed and they lost their shit. Cause <laughs> they didn't know, like, you know, like when, you know, like it's, if you think you're alone and somebody sneezes, imagine the look on your face, the jerk of your body, all four of them. And they like, and then stopped. 
I know nobody can see me except you, but they and stopped. And I was like, this is how you die, guys. Like, oh, my gosh, you were you were 30 feet from me. This is how you die. Like, pay attention. But so, you know, and I had the same thing where animals snuck up on me and I turn around and there's something behind me. In one case, a coyote was like six feet behind me. I didn't know it was there. Yeah. The prairie dogs knew it was there. They tried to tell me it was there. I didn't look directly behind me. And so now the prairie dogs were probably like, oh, she's going to die. She's so stupid. We're trying to tell her. So it's those moments that are, you know, I know I, I remember certain prairie dogs, but the, the, the monotony of counting plants, right? The five minute video focals of prairie dogs where you're like, I'm battling to stay awake because it's hot. And I've been up since 4.30 in the morning and, you know, are punctuated by those things that keep you going. Like what's going to happen tomorrow? And so I really connected with, with that because if you want to study wildlife, you learn very quickly. There is a lot of of elements that are not exciting. And if you don't have the passion for it, you will not last um, at all. And so you clearly had the passion and you went on to, to graduate school, obviously. And I'm, you know, I, I kind of, well, actually first let's talk about those sexy cheating bluebirds because <laughs> how exciting for you that you got to be part of, I mean, cause you know, right. The whole history of sort of bird behavior and really let's just say even mammal male behavior interpretation by biologists was males do all the choosing males are the ones that want like tons of partners and the females, you know, they're just really happy with the one best male they can get. Mm. And mm. that's been, that was the narrative. And you were part of this project that was the beginning of turning on its head everything that people had understood, especially about birds. Jennifer, I, you know, I can't tell at the time, right. You know, it was like, um, you know, that convention of, okay, there's the brightly colored male, there's the drably colored female, that's his mate that he chose. They are together forever until, you know, <laughs> hawk do them part. Um, <laughs> hawk do them part. <laughs> Sorry. You know, you get out there and you start seeing funky stuff or, you know, you see you know, three females, three adult females at one box, right? Right. Now, now, I, you know, you'd say, okay, you're making an assumption that they're females because of their plumage. Because sometimes, you know, maybe you have a bird that is not as brightly colored. And, 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 and we know now more about variation, right? And we know more about sort of this continuum um, that doesn't mark sort of this 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 binary gender status so it's so much that has changed in 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 those decades since and i feel really old but i feel i felt at the time as some of this stuff was being revealed i'm like wait a minute so the simple question of she's choosing and not him yeah really and more than one so so how's that working 
or she's ejecting the sperm of this male yeah. or another male. Whoa. You know, so so all of that, you know, as these things were coming into the literature and and you're learning and still and we're still learning, you know, that breaks down these old paradigms. Um, and I and I I'm sorry, I can't remember the authors, but that paper that came out where these female researchers, these women researchers did this work that showed the bias of of male only research and and these men who were saying, well, the males are doing most of the singing and they're like, wait a minute. You know, and in some of these birds and some of these neotropical birds, females are singing. Yeah. Singing a lot. But it's not being it's being underreported. So just in terms of how we think about the world, you know, we have, yeah, we have our eyes, but our eyes are sort of prisms. And we talked earlier about identity and and how we see the world is bent through the prisms of our identities. So, you know, being able to see the world sort of watching, you know, uh, this this boyer watching bluebird sex, which is basically what it was. But then having this this scientist, having Patty sort of help decipher it, you know, I feel I I mean, that was one of the privileges of my lifetime to have that experience. And it still informs me. And so I'm always thinking, you know, Patty used to hammer, you know, what are your assumptions? Yeah. What are you what are you going into the field assuming? And so you learn to go out there. Um, and and kind of shed it's sort of like shedding ego because in some ways assumptions are ego and 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 to shed those assumptions and just to be a blank slate and see what you see record it and um and maybe the statistics help you understand it maybe they don't and and part of what's happened to me in my life is that as much as i want to know as curious as i am about whatever it is that i'm seeing you know, like I'm, I'm listening to you talk about, you know, these four young, young bull elk that are there, you know, and you wonder who learned from that experience, you know, yeah. hey, I be more vigilant, you know, I got to come into this clearing downwind as opposed to coming in how I came in. Right. Um, Lucky that I was just there and not somebody with a, with right. a bow and arrow. <laughs> You're right. Because guess what? You know, that's a you win the Darwin Award at that point. Yeah. Um, but from, you know, from all, from all of that and, and, what, and what you learn as a scientist, there's, you develop this sort of comfort level with the things that you can't possibly know. You can't possibly know what those elk thought in that moment. They were startled. Um, you can't know what the coyote was thinking about you that sneaked up on you. Um, you can't know what the squirrel dumping pine cones on you think, right. you know, you can't know whether or not any of these wild beasts liked your smell or didn't, you know, and, yeah. and all of that intrigues me. It intrigues me because I'm like, and it takes me back to being a kid and it, and the stuff that I could know that I, you know, I opened the, the bee encyclopedia to find out where Scarlet Tanager spent the winter. Um, but then the things that I, I couldn't know or, or didn't seem knowable at the time. So in between that, you know, that knowing and that not knowing, um, 
is is life and yeah. and that's what science is in in some ways i think it's just sort of this constant search for you know for knowing a little bit more about life and that's what we we do except we're we're trying to figure it out for non-human things mostly yeah but then it sort of comes back around It does. Well, and, you know, I I will say, of course, I over I created the story in my mind of what the squirrel was thinking. And I created the story of, you know, what the coyote must have been, you know, just just like, wow, she's terrible at this. You know, (laughs) and, and you're right. I have no idea, but I crave to know. Right. It all I always want to know. I accept that I will never know uh, what any and sometimes, you know, what other humans know or are thinking. And so speaking of shedding assumptions, you know, you uh, I want to come back to something we were talking about in the beginning, which is, you know, you describe being a, a black bird or as a rare bird. And, you know, I've seen far more black people from uh, in, when I go to other countries out in, in nature, you know, it, it, it's not I mean, it just seems much more common in other like I was in Iceland and there was a lot of black people out, you know, hiking and at glaciers and, you know, and and so I'm wondering, is it do you think it's really a United States problem and and I'm wondering how much of the types of encounters and life threatening elements, you know, let's be honest, uh, of being alone in the woods deter black people from engaging in these activities. Wow. Well, I you know, well, on the light side, I guess all of those old uh, Facebook tests were right. I'm supposed to be in Iceland because that's what they would always tell me. Uh, really? <laughs> you know, that I'm. Yeah, like that I'm Afro-Icelandic. Um, but, you know, I think, Jennifer, that that part of, you know, what I do now is I always try to bring the context of history into play and how um, it impacts what we do as um, as 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 bird watchers or hikers or or outdoors people and and the history of this country quite frankly, is that trees don't mean the same thing for everyone. Trees were some things that, you know, that that some people swing in and they were things that some people swung from. So in, in thinking about how that impacts history, it impacts behavior, this country, it's ever present. I mean, you know, we're, we're still in this debate about monuments, right? But my aren't just things that are cast in stone or bronze. They're also memories in the mind. And so those monuments that exist in in our minds, I mean, my grandmother was born in 1896, right? Her parents, okay, um, were, were, were likely enslaved. And so she's telling me stories about her parents who did not live free. So think about how close that is. And, and so it, it, I'm always bothered when you get those people who say, oh, <laughs> um, you know, I marched with, with Dr. King. Racism is over and Obama was president. We're post-racial. Yeah, right. All you got to do is see a Confederate flag in the rotunda. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and you know that it's not over. And so that that hyper um, vigilant state that you talk about that we share when we're out, um, you know, that that is something that to some degree has been cultivated in this country, because when we think about um you know, the, the wilderness experience, for example, and I'm all about wilderness and wildness, but these are precepts of, of privileged white men who said, okay, now that we have exterminated um, indigenous peoples, we can now call this land wild without them on it. And then we have the disposable time and income um, to go maybe take our families to these faraway places um, but it's for us, yeah. right? Yeah. It's not, they weren't thinking about it maybe in the way of it being for everyone. So, you know, when you go out to these, to some of these places and to recognize, you know, one of the things that's so that's, that's important now, but it's almost become in some ways, it seems like checking a box, you know, you get on a talk and the first thing you have is the land acknowledgement and, 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 and rightly so. And people are giving, um, respect and space for indigenous peoples that were on the land. Well, in the South, I give that respect for the indigenous peoples that were on the land, but then I also give it for the enslaved peoples that were brought in after the indigenous peoples were exterminated. And, and, and so that history is important. You know, I always say I, I haven't been, I don't have any desire to go to Mount Rushmore, quite honestly. It's, it's disturbing to me that here's this holy land that has the, 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 the gigantic heads of, of people who, for the most part, were responsible in, in large part for moving indigenous peoples off of their lands. How does, how does that make them feel? I don't know. Maybe it doesn't bother everybody. But if, 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 if I go to a place that I know was created by black hands, like low country rice impoundments, I can't watch the birds. I can't watch, you know, black rails or hope for black rails or watch black ducks or red winged blackbirds without thinking about the black people who were bound and not free that created that landscape. So, so that is something, you know, while we look over our shoulders for someone who might be following us, not a coyote, <laughs> but a human being. <laughs> I also look over my other shoulder at history because I want to give, pay homage to my ancestors. I want to pay homage to those people who um, were on that land before. But then, you know, whatever third eye I have, hopefully to somehow see forward in a way, not past the history, but being respectful of it and trying to make sure we don't repeat it. So. Yeah, it's cool that you go to Iceland and see black people hiking around glaciers. I'm looking forward to doing that. Iceland doesn't have the same history of oppression, at least of of black people. I don't think that um, that that this country has or the persistent persecution. Right. Yeah. I mean, so so that is in mind. And, um, you know, I'm an American. And as James Baldwin said, you know, I love this country, but that also gives me it, I'm obligated to criticize it. Yeah, I'm obligated to try to make it better than it has been, because I do 
I do love it, but not in any sort of blind way of just waving a flag um, in the faces of all that's wrong. So, and, and that includes the environmental movement. That right. includes that's been white male run and um, and sort of forwarded in this way that's been exclusive. Yeah. And, so, well, you know, and I'm wondering, so, and, and in terms of the environment, I mean, we know, right, that disproportionately toxic waste dumps, pollution are happening in low-income neighborhoods and even that wealthy black neighborhoods had highways put through them to basically destroy them. Um, there's no other way to say it. And that wasn't in the 1800s. It wasn't in the early 1900s. And, you know, so we, we still have a country that steals land um, and steals livelihoods from from black people and indigenous people, actually, <laughs> you know, I'll call any but persons of color. Let's put it that way. And yeah. And so I'm wondering, though, do you think to what extent is there is there a movement? Because I don't I don't know this. Um, is there a movement or is there an effort to try to integrate the cultural history of a place uh, with the biological history that isn't, you know, that that is what you were talking about, that that, that black people built this landscape? And is there an effort to create uh, monuments to that, to acknowledge that history in a place that might, and could that create a more inclusive experience for, for people to go and visit? Great question. I, you know, I, I, I can't speak, um, being fully knowledgeable. I have to admit that, um, Jennifer, but I think, uh, you know, I know people are thinking about it, but, you know, the first, you know, when we talk about, you used the word reconcile earlier, and I think a lot about reconciliation, but the first part of reconciliation is recognition. You know, that comes beforehand and, 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 re and recognition, hell, we're having a hard time recognizing stuff still. Yeah. And so there can be no reconciliation without recognition. There certainly can't be reparations without reconciliation because then you're, you're just throwing whatever into the wind and saying, oh, now it's all fixed. And so the the movement, I think, first now is recognition. And I, I you know, I think about the monuments and um, and and their monuments coming down that should come down. And where, but where the monuments don't come down, I I, I am for inform, fully informing them, like, you know, having placards all around, you know, if you're not going to you know, you can't take, they can't take Stone Mountain. They're not going to grind at those Confederate, those traitors. They're not going to grind them off of the face of Stone Mountain. But what they ought to do is they, they ought to have a light show um, that fully informs who these traitors were, that they, that, that they broke up the nation so that they could keep black people as chattel. You know, and and so that's the way I think monuments um, are to be informed and that we begin not just a recognition, but, but a reconciliation. And that's going to be painful to some people. And I recognize that. But guess what? Four hundred and twenty two years of enslavement mm -hmm. and persecution and bias and having knees on your neck. That's painful. Mm -hmm. 
you know, so it, it, it's that process. Again, we talked earlier about until the pain of not changing becomes greater than the pain of change, we will remain the same. That's where we are. And we're there with conservation. We're there with, you know, it's, it's going to take, unfortunately, this pain um, to, to force us to be better. Otherwise, we're just going to stay in the same rut and sort of that, you know, yeah, we're, we're going to continue to major in things that we shouldn't major in. <laughs> um, yeah. And, yeah. and we're and, and we're going to we're, we're not going to produce the passion towards the best things. So I, I, I think it's a, you know, maybe it's a kind of a full circle thing, but that's I, I make sense of it that way. Well, I do know that I, I have always been surprised when people think that that like they were shocked that there's still racism. What? Like I, you know, and it just means I don't know where you've been. Right. You, I know where you've been. You've been living your little bubble life. You haven't actually been paying attention to because it doesn't impact you. And this is where that pain when we think about conservation, which, you know, we're going to we're going to talk about in a minute. We're, we're going to be, we're at the point where we're all going to be feeling some pain. And until we do, I don't think we're going to change before we talk about conservation and, and some hot topics there. Um, you know, some birds are discriminated against and have yeah. cultural baggage, um, oh, yeah. in the way that they're thought about. I mean, in, in, in Iceland, it's the greedy goals. Mm. That's how they're described in Australia. It's the Ibis. It's called a bin chicken. Yeah. Pigeons are dirty trash um, and Canada geese are deliberately run over by some people. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, in the U.S., it's I read an article, um, you know, where you talk about this. It's also the cormorant, which I know as the Ainga, the Brazilian yeah. word for that is Ainga. Mm. And, you know, why do you think that that there are these narratives about certain birds that that exists not just in the U.S. but in general. Why why do we have these negative narratives of of birds of some birds? You know, and and I, it's it's funny because in the U.S. the negative narratives are mainly about black <laughs> black birds, um, and not just icterids, but birds that are black. So crows and ravens and cormorants. Um, there are very few white birds, even, you know, like mute swans that are not a native species that aren't good for the systems, the ecosystems or, or native species, you know, there, there are huge debates about, um, about culling mute swans, for example. So it, it's funny how even bird-wise things sort of break down on a color line here. Um, but you know, you, you look at cormorants as as birds that were at one time really threatened by pesticidal impacts. I mean, they were uh, poster birds back in the in the late '60s, early '70s for impacts of DDT and PCBs and the like. But but then you know they began to recover, and and what happened was that cormorants began to impact humans. Um, more specifically, they started taking what people thought they owned or they controlled. So their impacts on fisheries, their impacts on 
you know, their guano fouling um, structures or taking out vegetation that people didn't that that people favored. So so that that bird that was once threatened um, became on a larger scale sort of a, a bird not to appreciate. But even before that, cormorants, you know, I'm, I'm looking at you know, my Sprunt and Chamberlain on the shelf and, um, you know, and, and cormorants, even in some ornithological texts were called nigger geese. Um, and they were called nigger geese because a, they were black in profile. They looked like waterfowl from far off. And then waterfowlers would sometimes be fooled into shooting them only to, to, to have this worthless bird that they couldn't eat that wasn't worth the time or effort to retrieve that they just let, let lie. So, um, you know, there are all these connections that, you know, I, and sometimes I'll start talking about this and people will roll their eyes and say, Oh, there he goes again. Now, you know, we're racist because we don't like cormorants, but all you got to do is look at the history. It's in the books. Yeah. Right. You know, and it's, I, you know, I have great respect for European starlings and I say Europe, European starlings didn't ask to be here. They yeah. were brought for the purposes of, you know, acclimatization societies. And they started in Central Park. Intelligent birds, um, beautiful birds, resourceful birds. But they happen to be blackish birds. Um, and, yeah, they compete with some native species for, for cavities. But I had someone ask me on a talk one night and they were they were really exercised about starlings. And I said, well, okay, yeah, starlings are this, they may be that, they may compete with some of these species. Um, but I guarantee you that starlings aren't driving things into extinction like outdoor cats are. Or starlings, let's let's look at the number of, of, of birds that are impacted by window collisions and, and outdoor cats as opposed to being excluded by European starlings. So, you know, it's a bird that people love far away, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. what murmuration and, and people set it to music and they cry, you know, right. Um, but then, you know, it's a bird that you could just walk out on fifth Avenue and shoot and nobody would care. You know, that's a, you know, somebody else sort of said that about human beings. I'm not going to mention any names, but so for me, Jennifer, the parallels between um, the bias that we have against non-human beings because of how they look and it is not so far away from the bias that we have against humans, other humans, because of how they look um, or how they choose to live their lives. So the, the empathy is not far away when we think about wild things. But as you bring up, you know, how people look at gulls in Iceland versus how people look at, you know, ibis in Australia or different species in other places, it's, 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 it's funny how in this country so much comes down to color. Yeah. Well, so much because yeah, well, and, you know, and even birders discriminate against certain birds and oh, yeah. So something that was really disturbing, and since you're planning to go to Iceland, I should prepare you for this. And I don't know how to change this, and maybe we can figure out a way after the show. I was there, and, you know, everybody's rushing to go see the puffins, right? Mm -hmm. These beautiful, colorful birds, magical puffins. 
and shocked when they find out that Icelanders shoot them and eat them. Right. And, and the same people that'll rush to go see them run over on their way, baby Fulmars, right. That are, that whose parents worked Mm. so hard because the thing about Fulmars, which you probably know is they get all fat, but their muscles don't work and they're not super great walkers anyway. They can't fly yet. They can't, they can't do anything, but they get out of the nest. And if they, if they can, if they're right in front of the sea, then they're fine. They usually just whoop onto the water and they float there for a while, living off their juicy fat reserves, right? Until they're like, okay, I can do stuff now. So on, but if you're not lucky enough to have had your parents put you right by the ocean, uh, you might mistake the pavement for water. Mm. Or black gravel beach. Yeah. So all of these, I mean, we're talking thousands of Fulmar baby chicks who are done being fed by their parents, probably, have landed on the side of the road. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of traffic in Iceland. There's not really good reason not to run over them. And even the person I was with who claims to be one of the most avid birders didn't slow down, you know, sort of with this disgusted, why are they in the road? They're so stupid. And I, if I have to hit one, I will. And there's this innocent Fulmar staring at a car. It can't, it literally cannot move, physically cannot stand up. And you see them try to like shuffle, 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 you know, but they also don't have the concept of a car. And instead of people slowing down on their mad rush to go see puffins, they just run right over these lovely birds because nobody gives a shit about Fulmars, but they will all have events to pick up little baby puffins and get them out of the road. There's no event to pick up baby Fulmars and get them out of the road. There's that Laird bias, right? You know, they're uh, this, this goals and goal like birds and, and, and how people perceive them. I mean, it's, um, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, I, you know, it's that, that sort of, um, that callousness, you know, it's, it's like being behind a car and watching someone swerve to run over a box turtle, right. They go out of their way, um, to do that because they can. And then that, that tells you something about that person. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's, that's, that's part of, uh, you know, as I, um, you know, and I talk to people about, um, you know, hunting and I, I hunt deer and I always tell them, I, you know, I, I don't hunt anything. I don't eat that my family and friends don't eat. I, I don't, and I never call hunting a sport, uh, not a sport. It's, um, it, it's killing is, is, is what it is. And so it's one of those things that when we think about life and I, you know, I talked about my ashes being in the wind, my, my wishes are for my ashes to be in the wind in a, in a, in a oak forest, um, that those, some of those ashes eventually become part of the soil. And, and then they, 
help to nourish an oak tree that produces acorns that, you know, the, 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 the descendants of the deer that I once ate get to eat. And, and, and then, um, you know, that circle is somehow complete. Um, but it's a, you know, the way that we think about life, Jennifer, um, you know, as, as wildlife ecologists or as bird watchers or as, as citizens of the world, you know, it, it makes a difference, you know, and when we can just discount things so much, we discount one thing to the point of running over it so mm-hmm. that we can get face and see the other thing, you know, watching people stomp through puddles full of salamander, um, neonates or, <laughs> you, you know, I got yeah. something to say about right to life for salamanders and puddles when you're going to see the warbler at the top of the hill, you, you know, it, it's, there's this dissonance that exists between sort of, um, you know, who we, we say we are and, and how we behave. Yeah. And so none of us are perfect, but the way that you try to even this thing out in some sort of way, again, is empathy. And that's one of, you know, I, I try to push that. Um, it's not so easy to push it in scientific articles, but you can push it in poetry and you can push it um, in, in creative writing. It's like you said, you know, I, I'm making up my own stories about this hummingbird attacking me next to the bush or the squirrel tossing cones down at me. I can conjure up in my mind what that squirrel is thinking. Yeah. And in some ways, though, they're the only data that you have is what you are imagining. That's important data that helps you through this world in a way that helps you maybe to treat things better, yeah. uh, to be more empathetic in some way. Um, otherwise, if you're just depending on the data that you can put through, you know, um, transformations and in the sausage machine of uh, the sausage maker of statistics, and it comes out the other end, but you've not cared about anything else, then you've essentially run over the baby Fulmars to yeah. get to puffins. You run over the box turtle in your rush to see something else. You've stopped in the puddle full of, of, of salamander and frog eggs um, to get to see the one thing that you think you should see. So, uh, you know, it's there's this this rhythm to it all that that you obviously recognize in what you do in in trying to break these things down to people who don't have an ologist behind their name. Right. Well, and, you know, it's it's interesting, Drew, because I think you do it in such a beautiful way with your poetry. And I am I'm definitely not poetically inclined. I'm not skilled in that, in that way. And, and so I want to encourage everyone listening, you know, I'm going to put links to your books, um, both the home place memoirs of a colored man's love affair with nature and sparrow envy field guide to birds and lesser beasts and some of your poetry. And I, you know, I want to be mindful of your time because I know I, I could talk to you for hours. Um, but I do want to touch on something that in the sort of pre-show we started talking about, 
because people will say they love animals or they love birds while they let their cat out the door. And you touched on this with respect to how we feel about starlings. And, and really, let's talk about what's really causing the decline because birds are in trouble and a big problem. And I had a cat or I had three. They've all since become, you know, back part of the cycle. Um, and you have cats and do you let your cats outside? No. Why not? (laughs) You know, Jennifer, here's the thing. Um, you know, the, the, the science says that, uh, we've in the last 50 years, we've probably lost about 3 billion birds. Um, and, and usually you don't think about billion unless you're talking about stars or grains of sand or blades of grass. But um, lots of those birds we know are being lost to, um, it used to be, we said feral cats, and it's not just feral cats. It's, you know, kitties with collars and cute names that people let out the back door at night uh, to roam around or in the middle of the day when they ask. And those cats that they said could never kill go out. And they're, they're, I mean, they're little tigers, they're little jaguars, they're little ocelots, they're little um, caracals, you know, and they, and they go out and they're efficient killers. And some of the stuff they bring back to their owners, but lots of it, um, they don't, and we never see it. But the, and so those cats are having um, a tremendous negative effect on bird life, not only in, in, in North America, but around the world. But to, to, to push the issue further, I mean, I'm sure you loved your three cats rest their eternal souls in kitty purgatory, wherever they may be. <laughs> kitty purgatory. <laughs> and um, cats know that they, they, they are, yeah, they're not going to kitty heaven or kitty hell. They go to kitty purgatory where they knock things off of the shelf. But the, you know, I think... If, if you take the view of, of caring for your pet, that, um, that those cats outside are subject to all kinds of danger, uh, one of which is being um, attacked by dogs, by other cats, but also they can become, become coyote snacks. Coyotes absolutely love um, outdoor cats. Um, they make regular meals of them. The research shows us that. Um, great horned owls. Are, are really good at taking cats um, as prey. So if you care about your cat, and then there's the danger of them becoming, you know, roadkill, of being right. injured um, in all sorts of ways. So if you truly, truly care about your cat, um, no, it is not, it doesn't need to get outside to practice being a natural cat. Um, <laughs> They are, you know, the Egyptians could tell you that, um, that they kept their kitties in temples. They were even buried and mummified with them. So um, your cat is perfectly happy indoors. You know, our cat, um, Trey, um, Trey gets out um, side in the screen porch. That's, that's as far as it goes. And you know, he looks wistfully through the window at the Cardinals and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, he has toys and stuff inside that keep him interested. But to protect your cat, keep them indoors. To protect birds and other wildlife, 
please, please, please keep your cat indoors. It's um, and you know, that's such a small thing to ask of people. So it's not a popular thing. You know, it's very controversial. Nope. I don't believe in trap neuter spay release. Yeah. Doesn't work. Right. Um, And so in order to keep the population down, you should have your indoor cat spayed and neutered anyway, or neutered, but keep your kitties indoors. And that's, you know, Jennifer, one of those things that um, as an ornithologist and just from, you know, the, the, the position that I have to speak to people about the birds they say they love, show you love your birds by keeping your, and show you love your cat by keeping them indoors. Absolutely. Now I'm going to go a step further. So if, if anybody out there feel he is triggered by this conversation, <laughs> put your seatbelt on. Okay. Cause here's the, here's the thing. Yeah. There's this myth that, oh, but my, in order to be happy, my cat must be outdoors. And there's the myth that, well, cats don't need interaction. They just can, you know, be by themselves and take care of themselves. And that to me means that, you know, many people, when they have a cat, they're looking for something they can be lazy with. And, and if you take offense, then you might be a lazy cat owner because the truth is you can create enrichment in your house. If you understand and truly care about the nature of your cat, they don't need it outside, but different personalities, like all individuals, all people, all dogs, all cats, all animals have their own sort of quirks and personalities. I had three. They were formerly feral. It was a mom and her two babies. Uh, and instead of catch, you know, neuter, trap, you know, release, they came inside. And it, it took a little longer to convince one of them until she encountered a human danger because you're, there are people out there who will hurt your cats as mm-hmm. well. And she got away and came home battered and beaten and never, ever wanted to go outside again. Not even on a screened porch ever. Wow. Her brother, no interest until he discovered a screened porch. And then he was like, oh, this is a nice way to be outside. But I built, you know, climbing things all along the, the ceiling. I had playtime regularly. And when he lost his sister and his mother, and it was just him, then there was at least two or three hours a day devoted to whatever it is he wanted to do, you know, safely. And so I think that that people sort of disrespect cats by thinking they're so simple, they're simplistic and asocial when cats are very social. Um, They're just differently social. And, you know, and you should make an effort to get to know what your cat needs and it doesn't need to be outside. So um, that's our coherent message at the end. Don't let your cat outside, especially now Halloween is coming. And if you have a black cat, do not let that cat outside because you do not seem to understand the horrors that await uh, black cats. And there is that black, again, that gets abused and tortured and, um, you know, 
I'll get upset if I keep talking about it. So just don't let your cats outside. And I just, um, Drew, thank you again, everybody. This is Jay, Drew Lanham. Thank you so much for being on the show. I, I feel so honored to have had the chance to talk to you and get to know you and share everything about you with listeners. Jennifer, thank you so much. I, you know, it's nice finally meeting the author of Wild Connections and having read, I read your book again on a, on a flight across the country and finally getting to meet you. And, um, and after hearing you on the radio, <laughs> on the EO Hughley show, it's nice to, to, to have the conversation. I look forward to more. Yes. Yeah, same here. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That was such a great episode. And I really, really enjoyed that conversation. And I hope you did too. Next week is Halloween. And I thought I would pick up a thread that came up in this episode about animals that have a bad reputation because of the way that they look. And, you know, we think of some species as being ghoulish and freaky and frightening because of the way they look. And so this Halloween is going to be devoted to challenging some of our perceptions about those slimy, creepy, freakish, ghoulish other animals and invite you to see something a little bit different about them and see some value in them. I'm going to keep it a surprise on what animals I'm going to focus on, but I can tell you that I did have some original art done for this, little necky, and Don't forget to check out the show notes and the podcast next week so you can see some wonderful art that was made by the spectacular artist, Chris Hookah. And she always brings my crazy, wacky ideas to life. And I hope you'll enjoy the artwork for next week. Until then, thanks for listening. And don't forget, you can keep up with us on all the major platforms that uh, play podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from. If you're so inclined, uh, give the show a like and even more if you want to share it so that other people can find it. You can find the show notes on my website, jenniferverdelin.com or on Wild Connection hosted by Podbean. And there you'll find ways to keep up with Drew and also links to his books and his poetry and so much more. 